Welcome back to Abundant Culture Podcast. Where we dissect the mindsets and tactics of the true beasts of business. People like Gary Vee, Grant Cardone, and Warren Buffett. All to create a blueprint to experience life more abundantly. Hey everybody, so glad to have you back today. At Abundant Culture, you know for sure that we absolutely, positively love capitalism. But because of all the envy and greed and hate that we experience in our society today, a lot of times capitalism can get a bad rap. But we believe in compassion with capitalism. We believe in people over profit. We believe in conscious capitalism. We believe in all of these things. And our guest today also does. So we're going to be talking about that today with our guest, Andy Swindler. Thank you again, Andy, for coming onto the podcast. We had an amazing talk a couple of weeks ago that lasted for like two hours or however long it was. So uh, we really wanted our audience to get a peek into what that conversation was about because uh, it was like super philosophical. It was definitely needed and we cannot wait for them to hear it. So before we begin into the meat and potatoes of the podcast, of the content, um, can you tell the audience a little bit about yourself, how you got into business? Absolutely. So we've got a lot of pressure to recreate that whole conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me. So uh, I got into business uh, when I was about 24. I had uh, actually studied journalism and I was lucky to have a computer when I was pretty young. So I'd always been playing around with computers, was pretty good at it. And I had worked at a web design company. This was right around, actually right through the the dot-com bubble bursting and so everything was was inflated and over overly excited um and thankfully web design wasn't quite as dramatically affected as some of the other inflated you know pieces of of uh, the investment world um but the company i was with a small company uh went uh, you know went away and uh one of my colleagues one of the partners we formed another company to pick up the pieces and what was left and that was a strange year because it was sort of bouncing around. I think our, that version of that company only lasted for four months and then was sort of bouncing around doing some other things. And then all the old clients started calling me and, you know, I, I, I made a decision ethically. I wasn't going to go chase them or anything, but one by one they started calling me and really the business was born out of that. The, the idea that I had left an impression, I had done good work, I had built good relationships and, I actually had already had an idea to go out on my own. So I I had created a brand, but put it on the shelf and then thought, okay, I'll just, I'll just do this. Why not? You know, (laughs) like the pieces are coming together. And that was also an age when, you know, obviously people have been solo for a long time, but that was right about, I think when it became much easier to run an entire business on a cell phone and a laptop, just even easier now with all the administrative tools and apps and things we have available. So, uh, so that was it. So, so my first uh, company, Aztec, was born, and that lasted for 14 years. I had at least one other startup in the middle of that along the way. So, yeah, I just love kicking off new things. Awesome. Um, so, basically, um, your first business kind of piggybacked off of a company that you were a part of. Is that what you're saying? 
That's right. That's right. These were relationships I had essentially built while working at another company. And okay. When that company went away, these clients were like, hey, we, we, we still need these things to be done. <laughs> the market yeah. needs <laughs> Yeah. So would you say that in a way that the company you work for kind of helped to prepare you uh, and give you the resources that you needed in order to kind of, you know, jump into your own, you know, thing? And like what... I guess the question is, uh, what did they prepare you for and what were you totally not prepared for when you actually started your business? Great question. So on the one hand, you know, just the, just, just the, the mere uh, notion that it could be done. You know, I, I think so much of what holds people back is, is some kind of belief system or, or maybe just never even occurring to them that, that they could go out and start a company or go out and just, just start working or freelancing or just, you know, following their dreams and their passions. And if you fast forward, which I assume we'll get to, like that's so much what I work on now as a, as a purpose coach is like, how do we work on those belief systems? So, you know, first of all, it was just like, I was living in, I mean, the company was tiny, you know, it was five people. And so just living in inside the belief system that somebody could just go do that. So it, it was never a, a question um, and I don't know how much we'll get into it. I mean, I also now recognize there's um, some privileges involved with that as well. The, you know, the fact that I do have certain privileges that make it easier for me to go do that. So uh, the other thing I learned, I, I certainly learned some things about what not to do and you know, where to put the energy and where to put the money and all those things. But maybe even more importantly, I learned how hard it is I mean, it's so much easier, and I was I was pretty young, so I was I was a bit arrogant about it, just sitting there assuming, you know, oh, well, they don't know what they're doing, and oh, this should be this way, and that should be that way, and when when I didn't have uh, all the information, right, I didn't have all the pieces of the puzzle, mm-hmm. and I had never done it myself, and so that's that's a big lesson for anybody in any situation. I think it's just you know, don't don't assume you know what's going on, uh, and. And especially when it comes to entrepreneurship, as you both know, it is much, much harder than people often think it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's easy to glamorize. It's easy to just think, yeah, that's that's that easy. <laughs> There's this saying, it's like, why would you, uh, you know, instead of uh, uh, spending 40 hours working for somebody else, you know, just spend 80 hours working for yourself, you know? <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, now that you're in the your purpose coach and you're in that kind of business, um, when we initially met you, Marie introduced you as like capitalism with love. Um, so can you explain that concept a little bit? Absolutely. So the name of my practice is Lead from Love. And yeah, it, to me, it, it all keeps coming back to love. And there's a, I've been collecting definitions of love in various ways. I built various models to explain how I look at love and, and how work fits into it. And the simplest one that I've come up with is absolute appreciation. That if we can stay humbled in a way that I think it's really not possible in the human condition to appreciate everything because we get frustrated and we have all sorts of <coughs> things that, that come along. And so this idea of absolute appreciation keeps us grounded and rooted in a kind of humility, right? Of, of, actually, it's, a, it's actually related. It's a good segue. It's related to what I was just saying. Like, 
you know, I didn't have love for that company I was in, uh, even though, to the point of your question, I was learning, I was growing, I, you know, and I was, there were a lot of really good things happening there. And, and to some extent, I appreciated that, I suppose, but I spent a lot of time being frustrated, a lot of times, oh, I could do this better, and they don't know what they're doing, all that. And that's, uh, that's not love to me. That's not appreciating them or assuming that they have other things going on or hardships or that I'm not you know, the absolute center of that universe. And, you know, love to me is, is appreciating all of it and appreciating even the things that might seem frustrating because there's, there's probably some greater gift to that and some reason that exists that we don't, maybe we can't fully see. Yeah. So, you know, I love that you say that, but I know people would definitely listen to this and find that very, very hard uh, because I know I definitely do. So like, what are some of the steps or like, what is your strategy behind, um, it's easy to appreciate those things that are working well for you. It's easy to appreciate, you know, making a lot of money, you know, landing a big contract with somebody or like the successes are really easy to appreciate. But um, how would you say that somebody would go about appreciating, I guess, the failures and the hardships and the different things that an entrepreneur will have to go through um, in their career? You know, sometimes I, I wonder if this, um, like, celebration of failure, it's, like, really charged up and, like, yeah, let's fail and let's do it and let's, you know, like, like I wonder if that kind of excitement is actually covering up some deeper emotion of shame, guilt, fear, sadness, you know, anything like that. And I think that's a lot of how we individually and as a society operate is we are, we've come in a, within an infinite array of distractions uh, to get those feelings and being, I mean, it's a lot of my work now and a lot of research, a lot of my mentors, it, it, it's, it all really seems to come back to being with the discomfort of those emotions. You know, and we, I think, I know I received a lot of conditioning and training. I think we all generally do. And a lot of it's like how we're marketed to as well uh, to, to avoid that, right. To avoid those, those feelings. And in many cases, unless it's like a, a deep trauma, a feeling only takes about 90 seconds to fully process if we allow it, which is remarkable because if we avoid it, it might spend, it might take years. It might, it might be in there sort of affecting us and, and guiding us in, in subconscious ways for years. So that's, that's, I think the way to appreciate it is to simply be with the emotions that are arising around it and, and through it. And there is, some beauty in there because that's truth and and that's it if we can face truth and you know and and the part i do agree with that in the broader sentiment is learning from it you know what can we learn from it without dwelling on it yeah for sure i love that um you mentioned that and that even just gave me like a new perspective so like uh i really liked how you said that um like celebrating failures could be like a cover-up because um, I just read like two books. I'm in the middle of one right now and they're like about purpose and the other one was about conversation. But um, the gist like of both of them was about being present. Um, so like I can like totally relate to what you're saying right now just because I've been reading so much about being present lately. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing I was kind of thinking is a lot of people uh might not understand the 
impact that this might necessarily have on um, their their businesses. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because I found in my entrepreneurial journey, um, it was uh, it started off as learning these really hard, tangible skills that you could see. But then there's all of these other skills that a lot of entrepreneurs actually never master that uh, you cannot see. And a lot of times I feel like they're the most important ones. So could you talk about maybe the effect that, you know, things of uh, things like, you know, capitalism with love and also um, being present might actually, you know, do for somebody's company or their business or whatever it may be that they're doing? Absolutely. Yeah, it can it can show up in so many ways. Um, you know, there's some more broad terms. Not everybody identifies with the word love in capitalism, but there's there's conscious capitalism. There's the B Corp movement. Uh, there are uh, there's small giants. I mean, there's a number of flavors that I think are all whether they or whether or not they use the word love, uh, it is very present. Uh, you know, one of the I was actually talking to another entrepreneurial colleague of mine the other day, and and she was commenting that, you know, as a business owner, it's so, it's, it's easier probably most of the time to make decisions from fear. So, you know, I think it's reasonable to put fear and love as, as poles and look at those together or hold them in that way. And, and I do think love can be the way through fear. Uh, and we, we could also call that courage and, you know, Brene Brown's kind of cornered the market on vulnerability and courage, but it's really wonderful research <clears throat> that she's done. Yeah. And she also doesn't use the word love quite so much, but I think it's uh, right in line with all of that. I think, you know, love, you know, leap from love is essentially, you know, learn to love yourself and appreciate everything about you. So then you can move through courage and in spite of, or through fear. So in business, the way that shows up, you know, most people, for instance, don't quit their jobs, they quit their managers. So most businesses are drawn or, or built as hierarchies, which is really left over from a military structure, which in some cases makes sense, but in a lot of cases it doesn't. In, in a lot of creative fields and service-oriented fields, it actually doesn't make sense to, to lock everybody into that hierarchy and put everybody in little boxes. And a lot of managers really are, are using decades old, you know, managerial training, that it's really about power over and kind of shut up and do your job type of things. And that's just not the way that humans flourish and are motivated to be their best. So, you know, love is a bit of a leap of faith within business because it's letting go of some of that control. It's actually learning to, you know, having the courage to trust that people are going to do their best work if they're not held down in a hierarchy, if they're not, you know, boxed in to, to you know, one, one little job. <clears throat> and it's, it, it is trickier in some ways, um, you know, in terms of doing that at scale, building training programs that support that. Um, but I think it's the human and loving thing to do. And it's, I, I, I recall in my business, especially when we got larger, we had, I had 13 full-time employees uh, that, it, I think a lot of decisions, I, I remember wanting to do something from love or wanting to make a more conscious decision or wanting to offer benefits and things to people. And 
in, or wanting to be transparent. That's a really big one. Like there's this idea of, of um, you know, like open accounting and, and full transparency with the books. And the companies that do that are tremendously more successful because they're actually crowdsourcing innovation and problem solving all throughout the company. And so the people who are, let's say the delivery truck driver who, you know, is out there doing delivery has the, the, the power, the knowledge and the wherewithal and the support to make a decision, maybe even change the system rather than the idea that a few people in a small room at the top of a hierarchy can actually think of everything and let that flow yeah. through. Yeah. So I think transparency, trust, courage, I mean, these are all, I think, uh, powered by love, if you will. Yeah. So instead of like the hierarchy, it's more so just everyone's kind of the same across the board. So there, there are different ways to, you know, break down hierarchy. Um, you know, part of that, I mean, even if there is a manager, so one, one option would be even if there is a hierarchy that managers can be trained to, to lead people, to coach people, like you'd say going from this, this sort of power over top down managerial style, trying to, trying to hold people down and sort of, it's like, I don't know, a, a pot boiling over and just trying to like hold the pot on, but there's this like beautiful human that wants to be fully expressed underneath it, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's one way would just be to change attitudes about leadership and management and, and how we reinforce that hierarchy or even exaggerate that hierarchy. And, other, and then the transparency is another way to do that. Um, there, I know one example of a company where they have their entire, the entire path, like everywhere you could ever possibly go in the company, every job you could ever have is on a big board and everything you would need to be trained in to get there, and then and also what the pay rate is for all of those. So everybody in the entire company, it, even though there's a, there is a hierarchy, it's a, it's a pizza place, you know, and there are managers, everybody understands, you know, it's not about like a manager getting this power and then holding it over everybody. It's actually the managers are incentivized to like bring everybody along and say, oh, do you, wanna, do you want this job? Great, and then here's the path for you to get there. And so that becomes much more of a coaching relationship. Now on the other, on the more advanced side, there are a few different operating systems uh, where businesses actually completely reduce hierarchy. The most popular one I think is, is, is called Holacracy. And uh, it's, it's pretty advanced. It's an all-in model where, and everything's basically arranged in circles. Uh, so there really isn't a strict hierarchy. And I, I'm le uh, familiar with that, but I'm actually much more familiar with one called the Collaborative Operating System which is more compartmentalized. It, it really, the whole thing basically centers around a couple of key concepts. You know, one is that, that you're always looping back to get ownership and alignment through, through all of the stakeholders that are involved in any given decision. And that alone, that one idea alone is transformative. You know, as I was going through the training, I was just realizing, wow, this is a, and, and actually the other one is being explicit, like we were just talking about, like transparency, excuse me, transparency and trust. I mean, a lot of that has to do with the maturity of being explicit, asking for what I want, knowing what I want, trusting that I can have a straightforward conversation with somebody about it. And if it's a larger group, this idea of ownership and alignment, do people have ownership, which is like agency, do they have some access to the power structure here or, or a voice where they could change things? And are we aligned? Are we actually all aligned? And the idea there is if you loop through ownership and alignment enough, then, you will have nobody left to object. 
And it's not because in a hierarchy, you might have nobody left to object because, well, in a more civilized way, maybe you just maybe you just never heard their objections or never gave them a voice on a less, you know, on a more extreme version, like you killed them all. So <laughs> that's, like, that's how a lot of hierarchies have worked throughout history. Um, but, but this is a, a, it feels like a radical model because it, it distributes the power in a totally different way. Yeah. And I, I love that idea as well, too, because it seems to me that we're kind of in a, we're, we're coming from an age where like these companies, they're, they're basically entities, but a lot of times the whole entity is its fate, you know, its future and everything um, involving, like revolving around the entity is decided in this small little room by a few people who, you know, aren't doing a lot of the day-to-day operations of it. And in my mind, when you were talking, when I was thinking about the a company as being an entity, I was like, every piece of that entity should kind of work together for the greater good of the entire entity. And I thought about kind of, you know, either the human body or even, you know, any type of, you know, living creature. Like if there is, you know, I guess a cell in that creature or that human that doesn't align with uh, what the rest of the body actually wants, then that's where you get sickness, disease, and things like cancer from. And I feel like kind of like what you were saying with the, um, I forgot what you called it, but the, I guess the company where everybody has, you know, kind of like ownership stake and, you know, different ideas and, you know, coming in alignment with that, I feel like that's kind of what it really should be that because that's what a healthy body, that's what a healthy entity should probably consist of. So I feel like that is very revolutionary and it's, it's crazy that more companies aren't ran like that because I feel like, you know, just because somebody's a janitor doesn't necessarily make, uh, doesn't necessarily make it so that that janitor doesn't have good ideas that could push the company forward. And I feel like his position should necessarily make it so that um, he does not have a voice or an opinion about, you know, other different types of operations in the company. Because I've actually seen companies where it's like the janitor is like just knows everything you could possibly know. I think that was that was Nike. Like we read upon it somewhere and the janitor at Nike, like he knew like the backstory and everything. Like he was like so deep into the company and like why it was even there. Yeah. For sure. I love that. Uh, you know, a couple of things come up. One is, you know, that's part of this idea of lead from love, right? Is looking, seeing that janitor as a, as a whole human being before you see his identity, before you see his background, before you see his role, before you see, right? And just engaging as a human being. And I think that's a lot of capitalism is fundamentally dehumanizing. And I, that goes in all directions. You know, it's, it's more obvious, I think, with, uh, you know, factory workers or, or janitors and, and whatnot. But, you know, I think, I think leaders are also dehumanized in various ways. They're held to certain standards and not allowed to express certain emotions and you know, various things like that. But I love how you're comparing it to nature. I think uh, I have a lot of bo- a, a colleague, actually, who compares uh, a lot of work um, to the cellular structure of the body. 
And it's like, even like when we, she had this whole piece talking about boundaries and uh, it was like just looking at a cellular membrane and cells, cells let certain things in and they don't let other things out. And, you know, and yeah. this idea of boundaries is, is so, so, so important. And that's, that's my, a lot of my personal journey lately, you know, I've realized that um, I'm, I have empathic qualities or, or highly sensitive. There's a few different sort of labels you might put on it, but this idea that I, I let a lot of energy in from other people and that can be really exhausting and, and it can even lead to not just fatigue, but even, um, I, I don't know, even, even being kind of resentful for that. Like, Oh, why, why are you, I don't want all your energy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there are ways to manage those boundaries. Like there are ways to manage all boundaries in life. And that's, I think that's like a lot of what we're all going through in the social justice discussions, right? Like, well, cause some of those boundaries are interpersonal. Some of them are systemic. Some of them are built on laws that need to be changed. I mean, all sorts of things. Yeah, for sure. Since you are a purpose coach, um, what does the process look like for um, like employees and then for like an entire company, like when you work with like these individuals? For purpose, <laughs> yeah. The so I use a methodology called True Purpose, and it's been around for a little more than ten years. And so, if I'm coaching an individual, like a leader or a CEO, or often it's somebody in transition, somebody who's a little later in career, saying, "Gosh, I've done well in my career. I've checked off all the boxes. The kids are out of the house. <laughs> I, I got. I probably got decades left. Like, what's what's going on?" So. Maybe that's an existential crisis. Maybe that's just a curiosity. Uh, so it starts there. It starts with some reason to go into the journey because it is, uh, it is a journey into the soul, into the heart. And it takes typically about 12 sessions, ideally weekly, so 12 weeks. And there's quite a bit of journaling and introspection, meditation. There's all these different tools that we deploy. And it really, uh, it is an act of self-love, I believe, to go through this journey uh, as any transformational journey and to hold, again, to be in that discomfort, you know, because what we're generally doing is, you know, peeling back the layers of ego and conditioning that, that we all tend to pick up from the world as we go. It's just a natural part of how we socialize and how we develop our own sense of identity and our place in the world. And, you know, gently, and I don't, I never call that wrong either. I think that's part of the journey and it's an important part of, part of, an important part of how we develop. And, and yet there's some value to picking that apart and finding, well, what is that? What is the soul really yearning for? And what is, what, and, that, and we call that purpose. We can call it a lot of different things. We call it a calling. Um, I, I like that term too, because it's, it's the sense that there's something greater some other energy, some other greater force that's really calling us forth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's that's more what true purpose is about. Uh, it's not for everybody. Some some people, and I have no criticism or opinion of this. If, if some people would prefer to say, "Yeah, I have a purpose, and I'm just going to sort of make it up today," and that's what it is. And that's, <laughs> and that's okay. That's great. So, uh, I think to some extent, each of us are living our purpose all the time, and so a bit of it is a question of you know, how, how dim is that signal gotten, you know, and, and how, how can we get back to that? Because when we, I know when we are living on purpose, and I know this for me and all the people I work with and my colleagues, that there is a sense, there's a sense of fulfillment and 
I keep sort of tinkering with the idea of like a universal you know, purpose for humanity. I, I won't be so bold as to know that I could do that, but um, it seems to almost always re relate back to service of some kind, which yeah. I think also relates to love. And, and that's what's really neat about this particular process about the soul work, because when we're getting to that level, we're, we're not listening to the part of the mind that's, that's fearful. Um, we're, we're respecting that part, actually. The very first part of the whole journey is to look at the fear, be with it, actually develop a kind of partnership and, and get permission from those parts of ourselves because they're, they're really important parts of ourselves that are protecting us and keeping us safe and all these things. So there is a respect for that. And then, and then to say, okay, do you mind just holding on for a moment while, while we go over here and listen to the heart? And that voice that comes out, we call a trusted source. And it could be, you know, I, I define a trusted source as a voice of pure love because I've never, ever, ever heard a trusted source really say anything that was spiteful or say anything. They seem to have infinite patience. They are, they are very wise. You know, it's tapping into these parts of ourselves that have this perhaps infinite wisdom that gets a bit cluttered and, and covered up by a lot of the other things we experience in life. And it, it is remarkable through my own relationship with my trusted source and as I coach clients to meet their trusted source and get this energetic wisdom, just how, how powerful it is, how truthful it is, how... I don't know. It's funny. It's, it's not really sensational. I mean, sometimes uh, I mean, the goal actually is to get a really strong emotional reaction. That's how we actually measure the quality of the purpose information. Mm -hmm. But often it just feels like this plain truth that's coming through. And, and, and that's the moment when it's like, yep, that's it. That, that just feels right. Yeah. Uh, so that's at an individual level. I'll pause there, see if there are any other questions that I can talk more about organization. Uh, no, just a quick comment. Um, like, it's, it's funny that you say, you know, uh, trying to lean, respecting the fear, but also trying to lean more towards like this uh, purpose and love and different things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just thought it was really interesting how, uh, like you said, a lot of people try to make it so that they're not fearful of anything. And you're saying basically, don't make it so that you're not fearful of things, but make it so that you respect that fear, but you don't have to let it control you. And I really like that because what I've noticed a lot of times in business is, um, well, for me, just to back up a little bit, I feel like fear is mainly a biological trigger that kind of protects you from you know bodily harm. I feel like um, at the base level, that's what fear is for, is to keep you from harm's way, really. Um, you know, the whole fight or flight thing. But it's, it's, as human beings, what I've noticed is that a lot of times it shows up in, you know, our relationships and our business where there's no, there's no real danger of bodily harm. Like, you could probably get your feelings hurt. But other than that, it's like um, there's no real surmount unsurmountable uh danger in that but it still feels the same like like it's there, caused in the mind yeah it's like there's been times in my business where it's it's almost it's felt like fight or flight but i feel like that type of reaction uh 
just doesn't necessarily have a place in certain aspects of life, such as business and a lot of different relationships. So I, I like how you touched on that because I feel like a lot of times I was trying to ignore this fear as instead of acknowledging it. And then um, after acknowledging it, focusing on that thing that would actually help me, um, you know, be of service to people instead of, you know, mainly being of service to myself. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a lot of the conscious leadership work and some of the neuroscience that I've read about it basically illustrates that exact concept and the idea that our minds actually can't tell the difference between a, a physical fear, you know, being chased by a tiger or whatever, <laughs> and like an emotional fear or, or a social fear, right? That we're going to, we're going to be rejected by the tribe is one of the, I think, deepest fears that we all share because deep in our DNA is the idea that if we got kicked out of the tribe, we would die because we, you know, this is, I think this is part of the, the dysfunction we're experiencing now. You know, we are, as a species, we are completely interdependent. I mean, in so many ways. And yet, somehow, I, I, my sense is that that might be less obvious. You know, the more we build a, a world where, well, I don't know where my, you know, it's like, where does your food come from? Well, it comes from the grocery store. No, no, really, where's your food come from? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, right? That we're just, you know, oddly, in a world where we have more access to information, you know, than ever, uh, I think in many ways, we're also disconnected from ourselves from each other from nature in various ways and maybe that's just the fire hose nature of it it's just like oh my gosh there's so much um but yeah that's what's coming up for me right now when you when you're when you're talking about that you know and, and this idea of, of fear i think plays into that that this fear of disconnection is and loneliness uh, is really deep and really real for a lot of people and sometimes that they can't even survive that, you know? And so I think this is where love comes in, you know, whether it's, and I think organizations provide an incredible infrastructure for people to love each other and just care for each other. And it's, it's not romance or sex or anything like that. It's just like, how, how can we take care of each other in these environments? And I think the more business can support that, uh, because it's already built the infrastructure, it's already gathered all the people, and, it's, and most of them are miserable, so how do we... <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like uh, with like the organizational level, that's where love would probably come in the most, right? Because everybody's like, like you said, we're interdependent upon each other. Um, so with the organizational um, purpose process, like how do you work through that process, like for the whole organization? Yeah, so I talked a bit about this connection to trusted source, this mm -hmm. connection to you know, energetic wisdom, the voice of love. And that is an essential part of this process moving into the organization as well. Uh, we actually call that direct access. You know, this idea of talking directly to that source of wisdom and energy versus an indirect method which is what most purpose work is, which is more, more of a brainstorm, more of a triangulation. When were we, you know, what, what are our roots? Why was this company founded? What, what are we passionate about? You know, those kinds of things. And again, I'm not here to, you know, criticize that, um, but it tends to be less powerful, less, less juicy. 
that's why a lot of purpose statements, sadly, even in like not-for-profits, a lot of the mission statements are these kind of watered-down, committee-driven, committee-written statements, uh, because that's what tends to happen. <laughs> you know, they tend to you tend to compromise on like, well, okay, well, what's the language everybody can kind of agree on? Okay, great, whatever. <laughs> and, it, and it's not something people. Or they, they're probably, especially in a not-for-profit, they're probably super passionate about the actual mission, but the, the way it's written, uh, probably not so much. Probably most people couldn't even recite it or remember it. Mm-hmm. So uh, with True Purpose, the first part of the process is connecting leaders to that trusted source. And so I, I actually just completed a, a process with a manufacturer that really, uh, beginning to end, is about one year. And because there, were, there was a process of working with seven individual leaders to walk through the individual purpose process and then in, and then go into the collective process, which we actually added three more people. There were there were 10 people in the room. And this was really beautiful. There was a series of three separate workshops. And the first one uh, was me leading them through a guided meditation to access this trusted source. And they're all journaling whatever they get and just letting it flow. And, and this is a big part of the practice. Actually, I want to emphasize that it is a practice like anything else in, in life, right? This is, this is something, even though it's intuition, uh, which would be another way to think about all this, the voice of intuition, even though it's part of us, uh, for whatever reason, just because we're human, it really does take practice to connect to the voice. So we usually say, keep talking at least once a week, if not more, you know, formally having written journaling dialogues and whatnot. So uh, in that, that first session, it, it was so beautiful, the information that they all got. It was all totally different. Um, and, then the, and then the question is, how do we piece this together? So then the, in the second workshop is, you know, that, that I've sorted the information into four different aspects of purpose. And uh, essentially, the difference is a being state, which is an essence, and then there's two states of doing. So we, one of those we call the blessing, like the daily doing of purpose. Like how do we actually show up each day? And I think that's the most actionable because that's like how do we how do we love each other each day? Mm-hmm. How do we show up and care for each other? And then the third we call it the mission, which is like that north star, that aspirational. Like, well, what what's the line on the horizon that we're all aligned to? Coming back to alignment and. And how do we use that to make decisions? Like, oh wow, we've really gotten off track, or wow, this really didn't go that well, or wow, should we take this this really this this gig, you know, that just doesn't seem like anybody's excited about? And there's an important notion there in business, you know. Actually, I'll circle back to that. So the fourth part is message. Like, what is the universal wisdom that that we've been entrusted to, to kind of share with the world? Just to button that up. But there's an important part about. Um, the idea of how purposeful a person or a company can be at any given time. Mm-hmm. And it might be possible for a person to be just almost like 100%, just always, always, always devoted to purpose. And I, and I think that's, or, or maybe actually getting, I'm just hedging a slightly there because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a challenge for anybody, I think. Um, but for a company, it's very, very challenging. In fact, I don't think the expectation should be that a company would be 100% purposeful all the time because there's so much more complexity and a company is obviously um, affected by market conditions and most of the market, I would argue, is not loving or conscious or purposeful. <laughs> so there are times, and, and here's where transparency is really, really important and, and where purpose can help because we could say, look, we know that 
we would all not like to take this gig because it is not in line with our purpose. And some of you are going to have to be working on this and you're not, and you were here because of the purpose and that's what excites us. And however, we need this revenue, right? We need this revenue to keep moving ahead so that we can fulfill our purpose tomorrow mm-hmm. and we can fulfill it in other ways. And I think that's a way that purpose can be used in a company to make those hard choices. And again, it goes back to the transparency, right? In a lot of companies, there would be a hierarchy where somebody would decide that in a locked room and maybe never tell anybody. Maybe they would use their purpose as a decision-making tool, maybe not. And, but what, where it's really powerful is if everybody can know that together and, and have a say in that and say, you know, this, this is what we see as the best path forward, that we should do this work and then we'll be able to look at the bigger arc of our mission and we'll be fulfilling that more later on versus if we you know, go out of business, right? And then nobody will go out of business. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so do you think that it's like almost necessary um, to sacrifice like that, um, maybe like, not fulfilling your purpose at that moment, but for like fulfilling it like over time, like just overall. So like, is that okay? Like, yeah, <laughs> I, I think her main question is kind of like, is uh purpose, is it a daily thing? Um, or is it more so like over the span of like 10 years? Like I, cause I mean, there there's different moments where uh kind of like you said you know um i'm there's a probably a week where i don't think about like my company's mission like i just it's like it's so many things to worry about i like i just don't think about it at all for like maybe an entire week but then there's some other weeks where it's like i can totally totally pass up on a um pass up on a opportunity that is probably worth like thousands of dollars and just to specifically focus on my purpose. So is it, is it more so a, would you say that is more so a marathon and there's times where you maybe get sidetracked or is it something that you have to adhere to like strictly every day, day in and day out? Great question. You know, one of the, you know, whether it's individual or a company, we always ask a question. There's, there's essentially five stages of the process. The first two are about the fear and resistance. Then the, the next two are about purpose and writing the statements, talking to the trusted source. Then the fifth stage we call manifestation. And this is, okay, we're gonna build a strategic plan for purpose. And the first question I ask is, well, how purposeful a life do you wanna live, whether you're a leader or a company, on a scale of one to 10? And so we quantify that and we'll calibrate it. So if you're a 10, uh, then you, yeah, I'd want to calibrate that. So you're, you're making almost all of your decisions based on purpose and really thinking about that on a daily basis and working with that and, and checking in with your trusted source on all big decisions. Uh, but if you're on the lower end of the scale, maybe not so much, you know, and, and I think if I interpreted what you just said correctly, that there's a, it's easy to, to lose touch, whether that's falling back into old patterns, behaviors, uh, 
or just just whatever life happens and just just losing touch and needing a needing a break i know this has happened for me in my meditation practice a couple times i've, I've just sort of fallen off and just had to start over and rebuild it you know and then that's that's okay um so that's one of the reasons we distinguish i mean true purpose is an incredibly detailed amount of purpose information so that's one of the reasons we distinguish between this blessing and this mission so the blessing is is like the daily doing and and it's and we actually get such a level of detail as to know your blessing steps it's like how do you bless other people in your life and it's it's abstract enough that the it can be applied to lots of different areas of life your your home and your relationship home your, your business your family your you know just going to the grocery store you know you know meeting a person on the street there's a version of your blessing every day and the idea is the more that you are living that and honoring that and all the steps in that then the more you're living your purpose and, and the more fulfilling it'll be it, it's really cool because you can use your blessing looking forward like oh how should i approach this particular uh, task or, or project or relationship and i need to actually look at the steps of my blessing to make sure i'm being purposeful or retroactively say wow that thing really did not go very well <laughs> like what and I know if I do that, sometimes I'll, I'll like, oh, well, I, you know, I skipped the first two steps of my blessing. So maybe that's, that's why I didn't go so well. Uh, yeah. So that, that can be this daily tool or even hourly, the moment to moment tool that, that you're using. Um, and then the other part of it, like you said, 10 year or that North star, that's, that's a little bit more about the mission. You know, what is the arc? What is the, what are the, um, the guardrails, and this is actually where values come in too, because I think of values as like the guardrails, right? Like that are gonna keep us pointed. But if mission is like that destination, um, and blessing is this daily process, then the values can keep us on track in another way and help us like, I don't know exactly all the details, but you're saying, you know, when I turn down a several thousand dollar deal, yeah, I mean, so if those aren't aligned with our values, uh, I, there was a banker, doing a conscious capitalism thing a few weeks ago. And, and he was saying, you know, when the mortgage crisis hit, they, they were looking at all these subprime loans and just saying, this, this doesn't make any sense to us. This is just not, these people can't afford these loans. <laughs> like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't line up with our values. And so they passed on all of it. And obviously that worked out better <laughs> for them. And so, <laughs> um, so, so I think it's both. And, I guess what's also coming up for me right now is, uh, you, you know, in explaining it, it could just seem like a lot. It could seem like oh, all this structure and all this daily stuff and this process I have to follow. And, you know, that, that for a while, I think it maybe feels that way when you're learning or practicing. And then eventually, I, I like to think that a lot of that strict process can fall away to a state of flow, to just realizing like, oh, this is, this is, we call it synchronicity. You know, this is how I flow through the world. And when things do just line up and when things, and, and it's interesting with opportunities, whether you believe that living on purpose actually makes more opportunities show up, which is possible, or if you just are noticing them more because you're spending more time in that state of love versus the fear of gossip and complaining and all that. And when you're in that energy, it's really hard to see opportunities and see new ways of solving problems. So kind of both. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, so we talked a lot about um, like the connectedness um, and you mentioned how we as like humans aren't as connected um, like as we should be. So 
you were telling us about like your feel real um, about the project that you're working on. So um, could you, you know, tell our audience what it is and, you know, the great things about it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So feel real. It's interesting. In some way, it's been incubating for about 12 years. Uh, it came to me as a vision in a dream, which a couple of years ago, I confirmed with, you know, I would meet my trusted source, you know, 10 years later. And then I asked her, I was like, hey, wait a minute, was that you in that dream? <laughs> it's like, yeah, 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 that was me. So it's, you know, even back in 2007, I was recognizing how crappy people can be to each other on the internet. And obviously that's not limited to the internet, but it seemed like it exaggerated it in a way. Oh like, yeah, by a lot. <laughs> what is the yeah why why do we just stop you know and so i was <clears throat> back then i believed a lot of it had to do with not being in real time right if we just sort of show up to our, our what's <clears throat> left of a conversation and a bunch of like threaded comments and then and we just drop one and then we take off it's just <laughs> really not uh, an interaction you know it's yeah like, um and and you know I don't really like to think in absolutes. So, you know, I, I was looking at, there was a thread on Facebook earlier today that, that where people disagreed and they very politely handled that and it was fine and they respected each other. So it's not to say it's impossible, but it's, it's, it's rare. It's rare. And as, as we all observe, um, and I thought the other, there were a couple of big problems. One was not being real time and then trying to do things in really big groups. Like, like, Oh, let's have, hundred people try to have a conversation or a few thousand people try to have a conversation. It's just a mess. It's not really a conversation. I, I think it's a funda fundamental limitation of human beings. We cannot actually um, maintain intimacy in our relationships with that many people at once. And, and, and this has a lot to do with what we're talking about, right? Like, because the, then the fear and the guarding kind of comes in, the social pressure, the, oh, now this is a totally different thing. And it's very natural. It happens to our, maybe all of us, or at least a lot of us. The third that I was concerned about back then was anonymity, but I, I don't even think that's the biggest challenge. You know, I think even on Facebook where people, you could probably still see somebody's name, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, that happens. So, <clears throat> so I've spent the last, you know, 12 years looking at the world through this lens. You know, it was that morning I got up and it was my flux capacitor moment, if anybody remembers Back to the Future. <laughs> and, uh, and I don't know how old your audience is, but, uh, <laughs> You know, and I wrote this out and I still have it, you know, these like seven pieces of paper. And what it is being built uh, now and, and released soon. So thanks for asking about it. And along the way, I did pick up the name Feel Real because the other major component I realized, and a lot of this has to do with my training as a coach and just a lot of things that are emerging around emotional intelligence and, all, and vulnerable leadership and all of that, is this emotional component to it you know that's that's actually i think when that fear you were talking about when that when we react and in the middle of a conversation and we feel like we're being threatened that's when we're all we're going to put up our armor and take a step back and maybe even start throwing stones or something worse right <laughs> and so there's this and that's all that much more heightened when we're talking about really contentious subjects or I mean, like we talked a bit about, you know, my own journey around my recognizing, you know, whiteness and the, the deeper history of this nation and, and how we all came to be here. And those discussions, and that's really where I'm personally putting myself more and more is to hold space for those types of discussions, because I think that 
that those are, those are conversations that need to happen. We need to figure out a way for them to happen. And they are happening. And that's one of the things about looking at the world through this lens for all these years. I've been meeting all the people that are holding space in various ways and for these real-time dialogues. And a lot of them are offline, a lot of them are in person. Some of them are online. And so Feel Real, the vision is that millions of people are in these small group real-time dialogue circles that are facilitated and they're holding space for each other and they're sharing these vulnerable stories and really getting into deeper truths and particularly holding space for that emotional journey. And, and I think where, where things, there's a, there's a critical moment when somebody has a really strong trigger or an emotion when we can retreat or we can actually come closer together. If we're vulnerable, we can come closer together. And so that's uh, the purpose of Feel Real is to bring together hearts that have been divided by minds. Because we could say that the fear that we're talking about is a, is a quality of the mind, right? Because there's, there's a reaction and then there's a story built about it. Like, that's a danger. And yeah. then if we grab onto that story, then the mind is actually, you know, maintaining and reinforcing the fear. Um, so that's, that's it. So I'm, you know, building this, uh, part of it's a platform, part of it's actually emerging as a consultancy to bring this idea of training, you know, not only holding space and, and holding these circles, uh, and also training people how to hold that space. So this can expand exponentially. Yeah. And I feel like that's an amazing project because when I look at social media, after we had our first conversation, I actually looked, took a closer look at um, social media and it's became this huge, I mean, absolutely massive numbers game. And like the people, like everybody's worried about having a ton of followers, especially I mean, when you're an entrepreneur in business trying to build a brand, you're worried about having one, a, a ton of followers. And a lot of times when somebody actually has succeeded in creating a very, very large following, a lot of times what the following is doing is talking to the person that facilitated the following. And there's not a lot of uh, conversation going on um, between the followers themselves. And I mean, even with that, though, like um, people, they want a lot of followers, but they don't want to follow a lot of people like for Instagram, for example. Oh, yeah. Like definitely. they'll only follow like 200 people, but then like they'll have like 24,000 followers. Like, yeah. There's no connections. Yeah. I guess if you're the president, that's one thing. But if you're like, <laughs> like I think Beyonce yeah. <laughs> doesn't follow anybody at all zero people but has millions of followers <laughs> yeah and i feel like a lot of times it's it's that um disconnect that you're kind of talking about you know like there's you know thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people you know flocking after this individual and a lot of times um the people following that person aren't saying, hey, you know, we have this thing in common, like what stories could we share between ourselves? Because I mean, a lot of those people who like follow Beyonce or, or whoever it is, that the reality of it is they, they're never, they're, most of them, I shouldn't say all, but a lot of them are not going to have a chance to have a more intimate relationship and conversation with her 
but there may be somebody in in that following that you actually can uh, have a more intimate conversation and relationship with and there might be a lot of value that you could add to each other so i really like how um your project is going to break down like you know these millions of people that are in on social media and try to uh, like put them in smaller groups and i feel like it'll foster a sense of more of a sense of i can actually one be heard and people will actually care what I'm talking about because it's only like a group of like 10 of us or whatever, or even less. And not only can I be heard, but uh, what I actually have to say, it, it matters to somebody. And I can actually get to know these people and I can be more of myself because I feel like if I'm, like I did uh, like one of my first speaking engagements not too long ago, I wanted it to be a big crowd, but it was probably a blessing that it actually was not a big crowd because I was so, I was more of myself than I probably otherwise would have been if, you know, freaking a hundred people have show, had showed up or whatever the case may be. So I feel like that's an awesome project and I feel like it'll benefit a lot of people, especially if you can have uh conversations on different subjects so like the one you brought up is also another one i was kind of thinking about when you were talking was uh like cyberbullying you know because that's became uh, a huge thing in our society and i feel like a lot of people i feel like some people underestimate how serious um that is because it's on the internet so it it, it seems more benign but at the same time i kind of think of not only what it said because some people you know have the strength to kind of shrug it off but at the same time what does that say about you know the um the compassion that exists in our society uh, now or like there of compassion and it kind of points back to what you were saying about you know having these huge massive you know comment sections for people to just say whatever they want and then leave and then never read what you said back mm-hmm. um and i feel like the feel real project would kind of alleviate that with, because now you have to have a dialogue with this person and now like if you do say something like very rude or off-putting to somebody you kind of have to deal with the consequences of what they say back or what other people are going to say to you about what you had to say to them. So I feel like it's, it's a simple idea and I'm surprised that it hasn't <laughs> like somebody hasn't tried to, I guess, bring it into existence before, because I feel like it's really, really needed. Well, thank you for saying that. And, <clears throat> and you know, I'm, as you were talking, and those beautiful examples, I was just thinking about hierarchy, you know, and in the example of like a, a somebody on Twitter with millions of followers, I mean, that's that's a kind of celebrity hierarchy, right? There's like one person right, with, with power and attention and everybody is following them. And and then the other, like a, a bully, right? That's like a micro hierarchy, a micro social hierarchy, right? You know, probably based on some, some lack in life, earlier life as a generic, uh, uh, you know, yes, and, and there's this something lacking, and oh, I figure out one day I have, I don't know if it's in the physical world, maybe I have physical power over somebody else, or in the internet, it's sort of 
I guess, flattens that physicality. And so, that, yeah, like other kinds of ways to push people around show up. And it can be a way, it's obviously a way that we fill in, we, we, we can accommodate for some of those things we're, that we're lacking in life. And that, so, you know, one shift that a, a variety of people talk about is this difference between power over and shifting that to power with. And, you know, yeah, why doesn't this exist? You know, I, I so for, well, first of all, I, I appreciate you saying that and I, and I hope you're right so this can thrive. Um, and part of that, part of what I think will make this different too is it's not just going to be based on everybody flocking to one new platform. You know, the, the idea is that we really respect the autonomy in the space of all of these people who are already doing all these various projects and find a way to, you know, respect that space there where they've established it in their communities because that's critically important and also provide a footprint within the, the overall platform so people can cross pollinate and get to know each other. Like yeah. you were saying, like, like, wow, I bet a bunch of Beyonce's Twitter followers might have, might have a lot in common and, uh, or, or might have a lot to talk about. And then eventually once that critical mass is there, you know, driving that to collective action, right? Like the people, the, the eight people who are, who are like, I mean, more and more, I think a lot of people are looking around the world and just saying, wow, you know, there's, there's so many things we want to work on and it, and it can feel like we're, we're weighted down and that's impossible, just the scope of it or held down by the systems we're all um, participating in. And, um, and, and those are, that's true. And the power of small groups, you know, throughout history has been proven that that's, that's how change starts. That's how change gets done. And I picking up, I think, I don't know if you were frustrated by it, but for me, I mean, when I had my agency, uh, I mean, we grew beyond web design, we were a digital agency, software development, all these things. I became really excited about the power of social media in 2007, 2008. And then I quickly became really disillusioned and sort of sad about it because it, it was commoditized, turned into a big ad network, basically reinforcing the, the hierarchies we've been talking about throughout this whole conversation that yeah. I think we're fundamentally addicted to. I think that's a lot of our challenge. Like, you know, when we talk about, when we, when we scale this up to like the consciousness of our entire species, like mm -hmm. can we evolve beyond this addiction to the hierarchies that we're in? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So we are very excited for you to finish this project because it's like, as everyone listening can see, it is needed. So much. Very, very much. <laughs> um, so what is the number one takeaway that you want people to walk away with from this episode? Learn to love yourself. Mm. And, you know, I think the main thing that comes up with that in this moment for me is respect your own boundaries. Yeah. And know how to once you establish those, know how to share them with people in a way that is also loving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It starts with the self. So yeah, <laughs> once you love yourself, then you can love everyone else. And then, you know, that's when it gets to the organization and then the organization can just flourish. Yeah. So that's, that's a great takeaway. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, because you're on an Abundant Culture podcast, we have to ask this question. Uh, how do you, in your line of work, in your life, 
in everything that you do, how do you spread abundance? How do I spread abundance? Well, to me, a lot of it is the attitude of abundance. And, and it's so much of what we've talked about. I mean, we could easily exchange abundance and scarcity for love and fear. If we're operating from that place of fear, then we're going to hoard things out of, of fear of scarcity. And, you know, interestingly, we seem to live in a time where we believe that things are scarce uh, that really aren't like love. And that we believe things are abundant that really aren't like our natural resources. And yeah. so the living is, is kind of interposed there. So, you know, my own way of doing that is loving myself, living a purposeful life, because all of those things help me maintain an attitude of abundance and believing in abundance, believing that, that we have everything we need for everybody on earth to, to live in an abundance. And, but to be careful that that isn't just material abundance, like the way we live in the U S on average is not sustainable if, if we, if everybody in the world did that. So it, it's also clarifying that idea of love and spiritual abundance, that to me being the most important kind versus material abundance. For sure. That's awesome. And I love that you made that distinction um, because when people think of abundance, a lot of times they do think of like material abundance. So like, oh, I'm going to get this big old house and the nice cars and um, I'm just going to go sit on my yacht because <laughs> I live in abundance. So I really like that you just broke down um, the two different types of abundance, really. So uh, I'm pretty sure people are going to watch this podcast and maybe they're going to be more interested in your, you know, feel real uh, project, or maybe they just want to learn more about purpose and how to find theirs or just how to be compassionate while still being a capitalist at the same time. And they're going to need a way to reach out to you. So what's the best way to actually contact you and reach out to you? Absolutely. So uh, my, my coaching and consulting work, you can find me at leadfromlove.io, uh, as well as some models I've developed around love and other, and other areas, and all my contact information is on there and social media, all that fun stuff. And then uh, the Feel Real uh, project will be at feelreal.net, and that's coming soon. So. Awesome. Awesome. That's incredible. Thank you. So we absolutely loved this conversation um and we wanted to make sure we didn't take too much of your time <laughs> because you know it definitely could have went on longer uh because this is a conversation that is needed um especially in entrepreneurship because you know in entrepreneurship everybody gets so wrapped up in just like material things again and um not really like living in love and expressing love uh, because like, you know, then it comes that they have to be like this hard CEO that is like mean and stern. Um, yeah. So this conversation was like so needed. Yeah. We appreciate it. Yes. <laughs> so oh, thank you for coming on to the Abundant Culture Podcast.
Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I love all the work you're doing. And yes, I feel like we could keep talking for a few hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> So that's all we have for today, folks. I hope you got as much value out of this as we did. Keep in mind, the only way we can improve is through constructive feedback. So remember to rate and review this episode. Also, you are not the only person that needs to know this super valuable information. So be sure to subscribe and share as well. Stay tuned for the next episode. And remember to always spread abundance. Peace.